In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Amen. Please sit. Today we come to the end of the season of Epiphany. It's a transition moment in the calendar, like all transitions. Something old goes away and something new begins. And what we have in the gospel is a pretty mysterious story, I think, wrapped in some glory and some strange details. It feels almost like two halves of a story, doesn't it, that sort of don't go together. And yet, the gospel is never so simple. There's always a reason that these things are next to each other. And in many ways, I think this gospel passage is here to help us prepare for the season of Lent, which we begin on Wednesday, with Ash Wednesday. When we find Jesus this morning, he is on top of a mountain. Now, most of you, I imagine, have been on various mountains in your life. You've driven up, you've walked up, maybe here in town, you've climbed some very big hills on some of the pathways that we have. Maybe you like to go to some of the mountains around here, the Berkshires or the Adirondacks. Maybe you've been on mountains in other places in the world. I think I've told you a couple of stories about my finding God on top of the mountains in Ecuador and El Salvador. And for me, I, there's something about being up there. Maybe it's true for some of you too. There's something about the clarity, about the change in perspective. I can almost always find God up there. It's also probably good for my blood pressure, right? You get up there, you calm down a little bit, you see things a little more clearly. The light plays on the trees, the wind moves in a particular way. That's not the moment that the disciples are having this morning, not by any stretch. But we have to sort of imagine this backdrop of the mountains because it helps us to understand what's happening for them. The transfiguration, we believe, happened on a mountain called Tabor. It was 1,886 feet high, about 11 miles from the Sea of Galilee, so kind of right in the middle of everything. Um, Sharon and others who have been there will tell you that the landscape is pretty flat, except for this weird mountain that sticks up out of nowhere. And it's kind of round and funny looking. And at the time, it would have been pretty green, pretty covered in vegetation. It's a little different now, but at the time, they think it was very, very pretty. There were some blue and green and yellow flowers that popped up all over the place. And this is kind of what they saw while they climbed up on this mountain. And the moment that they share there is strange, right? A couple of us have looked at this text in our committee Bible studies in the last couple of weeks. And one thing that people continued to bring up was the dazzling white of his clothes. So I actually went and looked at the Greek because I'm a nerd. Um, and for Jen in particular, the Greek actually is flashing like lightning. Just kind of cool. Can you imagine if your clothes suddenly started to flash like lightning? Jesus is visibly changed as well. His face changes. Things shift. He looks different. We don't know exactly how, but he looks different to the disciples. And then out of the cloud, the disciples also see Moses and Elijah. And even though the disciples so often get everything wrong and are a little bit dense, they know that this has to be a big deal because something like a ghost 
though I suppose they would have balked a little bit at that phrase. Nobody liked the, the word ghost. But that's sort of what we have here, which doesn't happen in Scripture very often, that long-dead biblical people show up and start walking around and having a conversation. It's rare. And it would creep you out a little bit, right? It's not, not a normal moment. How about that? And even though we know the disciples get things wrong all the time, even though we know that they're, they're kind of dense and they don't really understand Jesus' vision, Peter seems to know that this is an important moment. And he wants to keep it. He wants to stay in it. And admittedly, if you can think of some of the moments that you've spent on the top of a mountain or on the side of a mountain, those moments where you've had a change in perspective, where something has shifted for you, where maybe you shared something special with someone you love, maybe you felt connected to God, maybe you wanted to stay in that moment too. I'm not sure I can blame Peter for that, frankly. That he has this special moment with Jesus and he wants to keep it. I think he gets a little bit of a bad reputation from time to time, but in this particular moment, I kind of feel like we should let him off the hook. It makes sense to me that he would want to stay. Peter loves Jesus. And this had to be sort of a, an out-of-body kind of life-changing experience. Which one of us can say that we saw Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets? Moses, because he wrote most of it, or a lot of it, and Elijah, the great prophet who was gathered up by God, who actually, in theory, never actually died. He was just gathered up by God and carried off. And these two men appear. It's a heck of a moment. And even though it's Peter, who's rather hapless, he loves Jesus, and he wants to keep this moment. The text says something interesting about what he does, though, in his effort to keep this moment. Right? He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me build. Let us stay. And what he wants to do is sort of build you know, some, in, some habitations, some little huts, some little kind of booths to keep everyone there. And the text says he doesn't know what he has said. And what that means is he doesn't know, hapless Peter, that what he's suggesting would derail all of salvation history. He doesn't know that what he's suggesting would ruin God's plan from the beginning of time all the way up until now. He doesn't know that what he's suggesting would keep Jesus from redeeming all of creation. He doesn't know with his tiny, limited, little mortal brain that if they stay on the mountain, everything will be lost. He doesn't know that the Messiah and the law and the prophets can't be contained by a little hut. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he definitely doesn't know that God's plans are so big and so wonderful that they can't be stopped. He doesn't know yet, even though Jesus has told him, he doesn't know yet that Jesus has come to save the whole world. And by trying to keep this moment for himself, what he's doing is trying to rob everyone else, all of us, all of humanity, of the light that shines in the darkness, of the light that can never be overcome. Imagine, for just a minute, if Jesus had said to Peter, okay, 
sure, that's great. Thanks, Peter. Let's stay. Imagine. No finished ministry, no passion, no cross, no death, no resurrection, no appearing to the disciples, no ascension, no promise for us of everlasting life. Peter doesn't know what he's asking, but Jesus does. And it's clear from the way the rest of the story goes, we have this moment where God's voice breaks through, but then after that, what do they do? They go down the mountain. Jesus doesn't hesitate. And that's because, my friends, Jesus comes back down the mountain for you, to save you, to insist on your salvation. He will not be swayed. He will not be distracted. And he will march toward Jerusalem after this story with the cross in his eyes, fully aware of what he's walking directly into, ready to lay down his life for yours. He doesn't veer off the path. He doesn't let anything change his mind or change his course. He is focused, and he is on one directed mission to save you, to redeem you, and to die so that we might not know eternal death. That's why he comes back down the mountain. And the tricky part is that if you've seen him, if you've tasted this salvation, if you have any sense of who he is, if you call yourself a disciple of his, then he expects you to do the same thing. To take up your cross, to give yourself away, to meet the needs of your neighbors, to build a more just world, to go and do likewise, to sacrifice yourself, sometimes even making yourself uncomfortable, for the sake of others, to give up things that are important to us in order to serve and protect the weak and the sick, the vulnerable, the least, and the last, whom scripture tells us over and over again that Jesus particularly loved, to serve the common good. We who claim his name as Christians are expected to go and do the same thing that he does. It's not a small task, and frankly, if you do it right, <laughs> It's really tough. It's not glamorous, and it is not at all symbolic. There are folks who have suggested that this story of the transfiguration is symbolic, and I think the writer goes really far out of the way to show us that this is not a symbol. This is a real thing happening. And if you choose to be a disciple, it's a real thing that happens to you. It's not a symbol. And if you listen also to the story of Moses, it doesn't always go super well. It's not like everyone's super excited that you've had this experience with the divine and you've been changed and now you're going to do all these great things, right? The people didn't want to see that Moses had been changed. They didn't want to see that his face was shining. They were frightened by it, challenged by it, didn't want to have to do the same thing he was doing. So this is not an easy call. It's not easy work. And that is precisely why the second half of the gospel fits where it fits. Because Jesus comes down the mountain right into a healing story. Right into a, a situation where someone really needed him. And that's because he wants us to see and he wanted the disciples to see that you can't stay on the mountain. You can't stay in that lovely divine moment no matter how much you like. You have to come down the mountain and do the work. 
and Jesus walks into a, a moment of profound need. And the example, I think, is that Jesus is trying to tell us that that also is going to happen to us. If we claim the name of Christian, we also will experience the needs of the world. If we do the work of the gospel, we're going to be confronted with the needs of other people. And it's our job to work at that, to care about that. And like Peter, even though we want to hang on to Jesus, we can't. It's our job, quite literally, to give him away. Because there are people who need to be healed and loved and fed and clothed and served. And that is our work. If we claim his name and we claim his story and we share in his sacraments and in his fellowship and in his church here in this place, that is our work. And the world, as you know, is in quite a lot of need this morning. The needs of the world feel pressing to me. I imagine they do to you as well. We could be here all morning if we were going to talk about all of it, but I'll just name a few things. There are children in Florida and Texas who are being told that they can't be who they are. They can't be their authentic selves. There's a war in Europe fueled by greed and a love of violence and a desire for power. There are people in this country who are experiencing all kinds of poverty and sickness and sadness. We're plagued still by the sin of racism, frankly, all the isms. We have work here to do too, I think. If you listen to that great presentation by the Historical Society a couple of weeks ago, there were enslaved people in this town whose stories we need to tell, some who worked for St. Matthew's, actually, which is a fascinating connection and a story for us to explore and to tell and maybe some things to repent of. The world is in great need. And the truth is that so are we. Lest we think the need is outside of us, it never really is. And while we are called to serve, Jesus still comes down the mountain for you. And we have quite a few needs of our own, I think. We have our own frustration, our own sadness, our own broken hearts and broken relationships. There are people among us experiencing grief and all kinds of things, mental health crises, their own health struggles. Not to mention all of us are sort of sick and tired of the pandemic, right? And sick and tired of being sick and tired. We have our own needs and our own struggles and our own tragedies that we hide from each other. Some of them we share, but honestly, we hide quite a lot of it from each other. Not only do we need Jesus, so does everyone else. And so the good news this morning is that he comes down the mountain for you. He's presented with an option to stay where he is, and he does not. He is on a mission to go to Jerusalem and to go to the cross for you, to heal you, to save you. He gives up his safety and his whole self. He empties himself on the cross for you. 
And he doesn't just want us to see that, to see him as, as this person who's changed from glory to glory on the mountaintop. He doesn't just want us to feel like he's high and lofty. The second half of the gospel is really clear to show us the fact that he also wants us to see him on the ground with us, with people, in the midst of suffering, trying to help. Trying to help us and expecting us to try and help each other. He wants us to see it because he wants us to do it. I'll confess to you that this particular gospel is not always my favorite to preach because it's often dismissed as this sort of symbolic, metaphorical moment. And the truth is that if you dig into it, it has a lot to say to us about who we should be and about what it really means to be a disciple. Because this exchange between Jesus and Peter is sort of at the heart of everything, particularly as we turn our eyes and we start to prepare for Lent. This is the moment where Jesus decides where he's going and that he's going to go ahead and do what God has asked him to do. He did have a choice. And in this moment, he chooses. And that's a heavy thing. We may not have been on the mountain for this moment of transfiguration. You may not feel like you've ever seen Jesus chat with Moses and Elijah. I certainly don't. But I think if you're sitting here, it's because you think you have experienced Jesus in one way or another. In this community, maybe. In some of your relationships. Out in the world. Out in the beauty of creation. Maybe you just feel like you have a couple of fragments that you're holding on to and that you're weaving together. But in those moments, the invitation is for us not just to hold them and keep them for ourselves. The invitation is for us to let them change us, to be changed by those glimpses, those little foretastes of the kingdom, those tiny little snapshots, those little brushes with the divine that we feel, that we find, that we try to hold on to. The invitation is not just to hold them and remember them and be grateful for them, but to let them change you. And in many ways, to be transfigured the way that Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, the way that Moses is transfigured by the presence of God, to be changed. And part of that change, you know, it sounds, again, it sounds kind of high and lofty, right? Like we need to have this massive, interesting experience where the ghosts and the clouds and the voices come from heaven. But we don't really. At the end of the day, it's a fairly simple answer. How do we end up being transfigured? How do we become better disciples? How do we follow him more closely? Well, it's simple and difficult all at the same time. It means we bear witness to him wherever we go. It means that we learn over and over again. We practice over and over again trying to be gentle and kind. It means we seek forgiveness when we've done something wrong, and it means we forgive other people whether they've asked for it or not when they've done something to us. It means that we try as Christians to do what Jesus did, to do more than he had to, to give more than he had to, to love more than he had to. It means that we try to set things right when we think they're wrong. It means that we speak for the vulnerable, we protect the weak. It means that when we're confronted with need, our response, is, our response first is to try and meet it, to try and help. If we can train ourselves just, just in the just in the moment when we're confronted with need to respond 
rather than turn away. That's half the battle. It means that we learn to put the needs of others ahead of our own. It means, like last week in the gospel, we pray for our enemies and those who have hurt us. It's a lot, right? Yeah, it is. It's a lot, which is why it's simple and difficult. It's all of the honorable, faithful things we've ever been taught. And that's the path. Over and over again, every day, a little bit more. And what happens is, like in the collect, we prayed at the very beginning, the first prayer, we're changed more and more into his likeness. That is good news for the world that needs so much. If we, just us here, just, just this group here in person, the group watching at home, if the small group of us were to be really changed more and more into his likeness, imagine the good that we could do in the world. Imagine what would change. The invitation of this text is for us to be transfigured as well, to be changed more and more into him. This is not a symbolic story. What it is is a story of creation, of salvation, of redemption. Yours, if you'll be changed. Amen.